From the front lines to the home front, America's military veterans and first responders are committed to serving our nation and our community and protecting our way of life. The Epic Times Battlefield Project, in partnership with the Havoc Journal, gives voice to America's service community and highlights their successes and their struggles, their triumphs, and their tragedies. In their own words and from their own hearts, these are their battlefields. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Battlefields Podcast. I am your host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charles Fate, once again bringing you true stories from the front lines to the home front. As always, if you like what you hear, please hit that like button and subscribe to the podcast. And of course, leave us a five-star review. And if you are interested in being a future guest on the show, our contact information is in the show notes. Today's guest is Joe Fair. Joe was born in Greenwood, Indiana, and served with the 1st Infantry Division in Vietnam. After completing his active military service, Joe worked at Ingersoll Rand for many years and continued to serve in the National Guard. Joe served as a first sergeant during Desert Shield and Desert Storm before retiring from the military and dedicating time to writing his book, Call Sign Dracula. From the rice fields of Vietnam to the deserts of Iraq to the boardroom at Ingersoll Rand, these are Joe Fair's battlefields. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today and talk about your experiences in Vietnam and especially about your book, Call Sign Dracula, a fascinating read I recommend to all of our listeners. So, Joe, I think the best way for us to start is kind of at the beginning of your military career. How did you end up in the Army and how did you end up finding yourself in Vietnam? Well, I graduated from high school in September, excuse me, May of 1968 and lived on a farm, small, small school in Adair County, Kentucky. I wasn't planning on going to college, planning on just farming with my dad. So I turned 18 in September 1968, went over and signed up for the uh, registration for the draft, which I was a 1A. And then I asked the lady what my chances were being drafted. She said probably uh, very, very high within the next six months. And I told her I really didn't want it. At that time, we had the draft. We didn't have the lottery. And I told her, I said, really? didn't want to wait that long, just being in limbo. She said, well, you can volunteer for the draft. And she said, that would probably take a couple of months. So I said, if I'm going to be drafted, I wouldn't volunteer for the draft. <laughs> and I'm up to the fourth. And on 25th of September, I got called up. <laughs> I don't know what happened in the three months, but we had called up. And then uh, I took my basic training at Fort Knox, Kentucky, and infantry training at uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana. So did Fort Polk help you prepare for being in Vietnam? Well, it, it did from the training as far as the weapons and some of the tactics, but uh, as far as the acclimation climate, no. It was it was cold. It, it, I'd started my training there in January, completed in, uh, in March, and it was quite, you know, some, some nights very, very cold and never got into the hot, humid weather that we, that we had in Vietnam. Had we had it in the summertime, it would have been different. <laughs> the, uh, it was a shock to the body when uh, I left Fort Polk. It was probably 40 degrees. Left Kentucky, 40 degrees, and got in Vietnam. It was you know, like 95 degrees high. Humidity. So the, the training was good with weapons and some of the tactics and stuff. But a lot of, uh, again, we uh, a lot of on-the-job training after I got to Vietnam. Yeah. Wow, very good. So did you have any close friends when you were basic training? I did. I had, uh, uh, I made friends, but one of my hometown guys, we served, 
uh, not not in basic training, but in, uh, when we got shipped to uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana, a guy from my hometown, we, we trained together at Fort Polk. I, none of my hometown friends were in, at Fort Knox at, uh, in the same minute. That's basic training. So it seems interesting to me that you'd have a, a person from your town that you'd link up with. It would, did you have a lot of people in your town sign up for the war, get drafted? No, I saw uh, the, the little town I was, uh, our, our quota per month was about eight to 10, 10 people. We were a very small county. Uh, the Derrick County, the town was probably 15,000 people total. The little town of Columbia was probably 3,000 people, 3,500 people. So it was very small. And uh, they went by quota system. And we had a, a lady at the draft board was telling me it's probably eight to 12 uh, uh, draftees per month, you know. So it was very small. Wow. Okay. All right. So do you have any fond memories about basic or anything stand out to you, either from the training you received or any of your drill instructors or anything like that? Well, I, I remember all three of my drill instructors, uh, Sergeant William, Sergeant Pugh, and uh, Sergeant Jenkins. And they, you know, I'm 18 year old, just got out of high school. And they've made such an impression on me uh, with their, their military bearing and their knowledge and, uh, pushing us to do our best. And I remember them very, very well. I met some good friends there, but uh, I came off the farm. I was, I only weighed about 145, maybe 150 pounds and six foot one. <laughs> so I was quite skinny, but I, I worked hard on the farm. So I was, you know, it was just muscle and bone. So the PT test uh, and the PT, the physical training stuff, I, I loved it. I thought it was easy. And uh, I was fortunate that I won the PT award at, at Fort Knox for that basic training cycle. There's probably 20,000 troops there. Sure. And I got, I got the, uh, the highest PT score of that. So I, that was really made me proud. Made my mom and dad proud. My dad always said, you know, hard work pays off, doesn't it? Said, yeah. <laughs> uh, so basically I remember that and went, went to uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana. And uh, I, it was a lot going on there. And I don't recall as much about uh, the drill drill instructors as I did basic because there we were just being pushed and, and, and staying in the in the in the in the woods training and firing weapons and I really enjoyed uh, being firing weapons and stuff. I never forget my dad telling me that uh, uh, when I told him when I went to basic training that they asked me a lot of questions and this questionnaire about were you sure footed? Yeah, I'm pretty sure footed. You like being outdoors? Oh, I love outdoors. And he liked being around weapons and firing weapons, I sure, I sure do. You know, my dad said, son, you just volunteer for the infantry. Said, <laughs> he was right. I got stuck in the infantry in Fort Polk, Louisiana. <laughs> good, good training at Fort Polk again with uh, uh, automatic weapons, the M60 machine gun, the uh, 50 cal, the M79 grenade launcher, uh, some training with uh, the uh, Claymore mines and stuff, but really good training. It, it prepared me. I, I think it got me ready for uh, Vietnam uh, as best they could. You know, like again, like the weather was different and uh, being around Vietnamese people and being a, you know, I'm, I'm a small town kid and being thrown into a, a country like Vietnam, what a shock it was. <laughs> so, well, how did your parents feel about you going into the army? Uh, my dad was, my dad's head was swelled with pride. My mom was concerned. My dad was concerned, but my dad was so proud. You know, he was a World War II vet, mm. and then the military was 
uh, very, very common in our family on both my mom's side and my dad's side. So I was kind of following tradition. So they were, they were both proud of me, very concerned, but very, very, very proud of me. Did you have any brothers or sisters? I had uh, two sisters and a brother, and uh, my uh, two sisters were older, and my brother was eight years younger than uh, oh, wow. uh, in life. My brother and I served in the Kentucky National Guard together, and we went to Desert Storm. I was his first sergeant in a firing battery, artillery firing battery. That was strange. <laughs> <laughs> No doubt. Well, yeah, and probably a very different war for you, right? In, oh, completely in, different war. I mean, different different place, different time, different circumstance, a different way of fighting the war. We, there we were fighting a, a conventional war in a different storm. And, of course, in, in Vietnam we were fighting a, a more a, a guerrilla-type warfare. You know? But it was different. Very good, yeah. Well, I want to come back to Desert Storm, but let's talk a little bit more about Vietnam. So, what was your what was your job in, in Vietnam? Did you have a particular position within your infantry squad that you fulfilled? Yeah, of course, I was eleven Bravo, which is the infantry MOS. When I first got there, uh, I was assigned just as a rifleman. And my first couple of weeks learning how to patrol, it didn't even give me the M60 machine gun and that stuff yet. I was just learning how to patrol, fitting in, and then. Uh, after I'd been there about three or four weeks, I'm thinking uh, I they put me on point, walking with point. I did some point, uh, walking point, and then uh, uh, did that for oh gosh, up until May. I forget what time in May it was, but uh, we'd had a ground attack and lost some people, and they put me on the. Uh, the it was before the ground attack. I, I went into uh, carrying ammunition for the M60 uh, machine gun because we were shorthanded in our weapons section. And then uh, I started carrying the ammunition the, uh, for the M60 machine gun. I was called an M60 assistant gunner. Mm-hmm. Uh, some late May, late May, I guess was, I was actually assigned to the M60 machine gun. The, uh, that was really the firepower of the platoon. And there was two, two M60s per platoon. And I, I, I was 18 year old, I kept thinking, my gosh, the army must be crazy. They're going to an eighteen-year-old punk. It's half the firepower of a platoon. I'm one of them. I thought, man, it was a lot of responsibility, big responsibility put on me. But uh, it was a twenty-three and a half pound weapon, and if you put a hundred-round magazine in there, or a hundred rounds a belt on it, it's probably weight close to thirty pound. It kicked my butt every day in the jungle. <laughs> Sure. Was carrying the machine gun considered a prestige position? Was that something special? It was. It was. Uh, they considered the the point point people walking point M sixty gunners and the RTOs, the radio telegraph operators, the radio people, as kind of the prestigious. And besides, we were we had medics assigned to us, but they weren't. They were not part of our unit. They were assigned to us. That's no way. The medics, and so it was. Yeah, it was M sixty was. And very few people wanted it because it was such a, a butt kicker with the weight of it and charging through the, the jungle with it. It was uh, it wanted to catch on every vine and every limb out there, you know. So oh, for sure. That's where they. That's how they came up with the the, the term. Wait a minute, vine. I don't know if you heard that or not, but we carrying that equipment. The vines would catch you, and you hear troops going, "Wait a minute, wait a minute, can I get this vine off?" So we called. Sorry, calling it the wait a minute vines. <laughs> so. But, <laughs> M60 was, I carried it for about six six months, so it was a big responsibility. Fired a lot of rounds to the M60 machine gun. 
I bet. What a what a great weapon that was for the time. So when I was reading your book, there was an interesting passage in there. It seems that the barrel locking mechanism came loose one time, and you had to fix it with some some duct tape, some hundred mile an hour tape. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, what happened? We were my my barrel. The locking mechanism on the barrel had become a little bit loose. It wasn't broken; it was loose. And uh, we were up on a chopper, and I had my uh, M60, the front of the weapon, hanging out the chopper. And we were probably about 1,500 feet. And the vibration from the chopper made that mechanism uh, come unlocked. It's oh wow! Lock, and the, my barrel fell off. And I looked down there; goes my barrel floating down toward the ground, and I was up. <laughs> guys and i looked over lieutenant uh was looking at me just kind of shaking his head fortunately for me the the, the the door gunner on the on the chopper saw what happened so he, he gave me a barrel and I put it, <laughs> we got on the ground I, we, everybody carried what they call a hundred mile an hour tape somebody had some tape you know and i taped that the mechanism down uh until i ordered a new one they brought me a new one out to, you know, part of the receiver group i ordered a new one but uh I, I knew Lieutenant Holst was probably going to say something to somebody, but he never did. He let it go. I, <laughs> I'd have been another big uh, egg on my face event again. I had quite a few of those. <laughs> so. I'm just trying to envision the, everyone's expression when you got the most powerful weapon in the platoon and the barrel goes sailing off That's, into the, the jungle. And we're in a pretty hostile area. <laughs> I don't, but it, fortunately for me, like I said, the door gunner had a spare barrel and gave it to me. So it's good they were interchangeable. <laughs> Well, Joe, by by this time in the war, everyone was getting issued M16s pretty much, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So how did you feel about the M16s? Did you like that weapon? I, I heard there was a lot of controversy about it back well, in Vietnam. When I went through basic, I went through basic with the M14. And uh, it, was a, uh, it was a good weapon, 7.62. And it was woodstock, rather heavy, kind of long. But when I got to... Uh, AIT, Advanced Individual Training, I got the M16. And the M16 we had there was the A2, and it had the forward assist and had the uh, flashing pressure mm. with a, on it. But when I got to Vietnam, and I, I liked the M16 at, at uh, Fort Pope, when I got to Vietnam, I really, when, when I carried the M16, I thought it was a very good weapon. I didn't have any problems with it jamming on me. Because years before that, they didn't have the forward assist. They didn't have the uh, 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 enclosed flash suppressor in it, which would get uh, dirt and stuff there. But uh, I kept the weapon clean, kept it oiled, and I really I fired several several rounds through the M16. I only loaded 18 rounds in my magazine because the troops had found out it's a 20 round magazine. But if you put 20 rounds in it, had a tendency to put too much pressure on the spring, and it would kind of it would kind of jam the weapon. Mm. But we 18 rounds, and I really thought it was a it was a lot lighter and, uh, than the uh, M14, and uh, it was just it, M16 was a good weapon to me. Some troops, uh, maybe year, I heard about years before, complained about the jamming and the misfires and stuff. But we never had none of our guys did not know of any problem with our M16s. So it was. I had the M16 and went up to Desert Storm. It was a very good weapon, you know. So did the the. Did I read in your book that the 203 got fielded about that same time when you were over in Vietnam? When I first got there, it didn't. But I think it was, I'm recalling now, I think it was in the, uh, 
October, November 1969 timeframe, they came out with a 203, which was the M16, and with a 203, the uh, 79 launcher on the bottom, like an over-under. And uh, uh, they came out of that, I'm, I'm thinking October, November 69, and uh, in our unit, uh, there was probably, let's see, it's probably six grenadiers, we called them, infantry guys carrying the M79. So they got to carry the M16 and the 79 as a combination, which made it a very good weapon. The only problem is they had to carry more ammunition. <laughs> they had to carry the 203, which is around for the the uh, 79 plus or M16. So it was a little more weight bearing, but it, it became a very good weapon because you had both both systems and one one person had both systems: the grenade launcher and the rifle. And I also read in the book that at one point you were issued the Green Eye, the kind of an early model night vision device. When I first got there, that was the uh, they give everybody gets a piece of equipment to carry, kind of, not everybody, but especially everybody carried something, you know, and when I first got to, they gave me what they, the Starlight Scope, and the uh, troops called it the Green Eye, because when you looked through it, everything was green. Uh-huh. Uh, I carried, it was very cumbersome, in a, in a, in a uh, bag, and I carried the darn thing, and it was pretty heavy, I'd say it probably weighed 20, 25 pounds, it was the old, old Starlight Scope, and, uh, but at nighttime, you're sitting on the ambush and stuff, it was pretty useful. You could see out there, and you could. You could uh, uh, it wasn't as clear as a, as the night vision goggles and stuff we had today, but it was pretty useful. Yeah. And uh, but I was glad to get rid of it because I did all that weight. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, did you have any particular pieces of gear that you really liked or were glad to have other than your M60 and the M16? Uh, like my bayonet. Mm. We all, we didn't we didn't carry the bayonet. Put it on any other weapon. We carried a bayonet to cut stuff and, you know, the use of the knife. And I liked the, uh, the poncho and poncho liner, which were lifesavers. It was for keeping you, keeping the rain off of you. And you blew it out in Vietnam when you get, you get soaking wet, the temperature drops 15, 20 degrees, you get very, very cold. Mm. But they, and the uh, uh, poncho liner was a lifesaver for that. Of course, I liked the canteens carrying plenty of water. <laughs> uh, I, I really didn't have a real f- I liked the rucksack I tried the butt pack and I didn't like that the guys talking to go into a rucksack and that was a m- much much better way to carry equipment and rations and stuff so uh, yeah I don't know if there was one particular besides my M16 or M60 machine gun besides those I, I kind of you know uh, the others were necessity also and uh, I, I couldn't s- see doing without without some of that stuff, you know, like my, the bayonet, uh, the canteens, canteen cup, and uh, poncho, poncho liner. Uh, I like the, the, the hand grenades they gave us as a weapon, and also the smoke grenades for, for you know, using for signaling stuff. But yeah, it was all important. And it's, I can't say that, besides my weapon, which one I favorite most, <laughs> I did. Well, I think the poncho liner is a perennial favorite. Uh, I think even even to this day, that's one of most troops' favorite pieces of equipment is that whoopee, yeah. that poncho liner. Yeah, and you guys started calling whoopee later. I didn't know what that was. <laughs> <laughs> I read about it, though. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a favorite. All right, so you get to Vietnam, Joe. What's, what's your first memory of getting off that plane when you're in country? Um, well... As, as we were, as we landed, everybody's looking out the windows. Of 
horse in the plainness. And uh, all the new guys, especially some of the guys were returning for their second tour mm. and on leave or whatever. But you can tell all the new guys. And, and uh, my friend from my hometown here, his name was Philip Warren. We kept, I know we kept saying, look, there, look, look at that. Can you believe that? What is that? <laughs> we, we walked off the plane, and the first thing that I remember was the, the heat, the humidity hitting me. But also the the uh, the smell of Vietnam, mm-hmm. hot, but it's got a almost a pungent smell to it. I, I guess it's uh, uh, like being in a uh, being really in the jungle. You smell like rotting, you know, uh, vegetation stuff. Uh-huh. And remember the the just uh, the heat, humidity, and that smell. That was the first thing that really. I said, "Wow, this is." I kept saying, this is going to be rough. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you know... I was sweating profusely, all right? So. <laughs> <laughs> did you know before you got in country what unit you were going to? Uh, we did not. Okay. Uh, we landed, and they took us to uh, off the plane onto a bus. We went to... Everybody went through the... When you went down, if you landed in Tonsonude uh, or... I can't remember the other Air Force Base there. Uh, you went to 90th Replacement Battalion. Now, people who flew into Cameron Bay went to another Replacement Battalion. I was flown north. But when I went into the 90th Replacement Battalion, and from there you waited for your orders as far as what unit you were going to be assigned to based upon your MOS and everything. So uh, my, my friend went to the 82nd Airborne, and I went to the uh, 1st Infantry Division. Okay. When you found out you were going to the Big Red One in the 1st Infantry Division, did you think that was yeah. a good assignment? Yeah, I, I did. I, I tell you what, uh, uh, I remember the, uh, one of the instructors at Fort Polk doing the rifle instruction there was was a Vietnam vet, and he was with the Big Red One. He talked highly of the Big Red One being a, being a real good unit, you know. And uh, that kind of struck in my mind, in, in my own mind, I don't know why. I had the idea. I like to get in that unit when I go to Vietnam. And uh, so I kind of said, well, if I want to get one, I'd like to be in the big red. If you're going to be one, be a big red one. That's what we always say. <laughs> I, I got assigned to the big red one. And some of the guys are, were leaving country there, and they were saying, hey, lots of luck. That's a hardcore unit. They, they believe in uh, uh, military discipline. And, and they did, really. And, uh, so, but I was kind of I was glad I got to, to the big red one. So I was proud of the heritage. It was the oldest division in the army and uh, what a heritage the big red ones got yeah from world war one all the way through you know so yeah it was i was was glad to be assigned to them well how were you treated when you first got to the unit as a replacement uh real well okay uh i i uh i was in uh like first we drove from uh from with 90th replacement they took us to the Support Command Headquarters for Vietnam, uh, for Big Red Morning Vietnam, at Zion. That's spelled with a D, D I N. And we took a truck to Lake A. And I met the uh, rear support sergeant there, a guy named Palmquist, a really super guy, trying to get me. Uh, this is just me. I was the only replacement going up at that time. And uh, helped me get my, my stuff together best we could. And I took a, a helicopter up to Quan Lloyd. That was our forward operating base uh, for the unit. And then there I met uh, uh, some guys that really helped me get my stuff together, pack in the rucksack, uh, take this, take that, you know. And then uh, flew out the next day to to the, to the jungle in a landing zone, met by uh, uh, 
as we jumped off the helicopter, told him who it was. He said I was assigned to the little platoon, and he took me over. And I met the uh, Lieutenant Cesaro and uh, uh, Dale really the platoon sergeant at the time, and uh, they introduced me to the unit. I, I did get to meet the, the company commander and first sergeant also, and then they took me over and, uh, to the squad I was assigned to, and the guys took care of me. A new guy, I mean, they, they really made sure I, they, they didn't put me in, 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 in harm's way <laughs> right off the bat, you know. They, just kind of let me ease into being a soldier in the jungle. But they really, really, really took good care of me. And I, I really appreciate it. I, I really appreciate what those guys did. I still remember them for today. And I'm in contact with many of today. Yeah. Well, Joe, the title of your book is Call Sign Dracula. So can you explain to the audience how that came about? Yeah, all the units uh, in, in the uh, Big Red One, the. Uh, they had a D as far as a unit designator, like uh, the, the Big Red One itself. The first unit division was Daring, D-A-R-I-N-G. And then uh, uh, there was a lot of Daring and Difficult, you name it. And when ours became Dracula, before that it was called Docket, D-O-C-K-E-T-T, but it became Dracula because uh, in 1965, 1966, we were doing a lot of night operations. And at the same time, they found this huge stash of black cloth and uh, uh, NVA and VC black cloth. And our Lieutenant Colonel, who was a battalion commander at the time, was Lieutenant Colonel Prillman. He thought, man, we ought to take that black cloth. Instead of you guys wearing green towels right next, let's make some scarves out of those. And, and this, the thought hitting, thought hitting said, heck, we do that. We'll become the call to black scarves. And then we'll change our call sign to Dracula since we're operating of a nighttime. And that was all approved by the division to do that. So uh, 1965 or 1966, uh, that's when it started after they found this huge bunch of black cloth and they didn't know what to do with it. And the tank commander decided we can make scarves out of them. Now, we all wore the scarves in the rear. That was a battalion uh, SOP. You had to do that. But when we got to the jungle, many of the guys didn't wear a scarf. We went back to the green towel around our neck. <laughs> but, oh, you had to have your black scarf. You went back in, and you had to have you wearing your black scarf. When you were back out of the jungle, you had to have it on. <laughs> well, was that a source of pride for the unit to have those black scarves? Well, it's the only unit that I, that I talked to thousands of people. I, I guess we were the only unit that was authorized a non-issued piece of clothing because <laughs> you, you had to, we, we made them up and buy them that because Vietnamese being their entrepreneurs like they are and capitalists like they are they started sewing the black scar you know making the black scars for us the local machine uh, local sewing shops and stuff and every unit had a, a different color like alpha was red that was the unit I was with and it had an A and a one slash two which was alpha first and second entry on it so uh, I think headquarters was white or, or yellow it was white, green, red, blue, and uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I guess it was. There's five units, but uh, it was pretty neat. We we were the only ones that uh, I know was authorized to wear any kind of uh, scarf like that at all. So we felt pretty good about that. Yeah. Well, Joe, in the book, I saw one of the pictures was a body count board. Is that something that the battalion did pretty regularly? Is, is keep track yes, of kills? The, the most one of the most measured. Uh, measurements of success 
was a body count. Not how many we got killed, but how many we killed. <laughs> so the the more the higher body counts you had, and uh, uh, it seemed like you were looked at as a better unit uh, and most favorable unit. And uh, it was important uh, for us to always have a high body count. But we got hot meals came out to us. You know, we got extra rations come out. Water, uh, you know, it just seemed like they kind of say, it kind of pump us up, reward us for having the highest body count, you know. But uh, and at one time, and uh, even on that board I showed in the book, I was with Alpha We were leading the way by far. So, <laughs> yeah, so we, we, and you know, you remember we there was a you hate to say it, we had a certain amount of pride, you know, mm-hmm. having that. Well, I saw in the back of your book, too, it looks like your unit took quite a few losses in Vietnam. Is that accurate? Yes, sir. We had uh, uh, the Alpha Company, the total time we were in Vietnam, my company had 58 Mm. killed from 65 to 1970. Uh, But uh, when I was there in Alpha Company, just in 69, it was from... from, uh, uh, April 69 to March of 70, uh, we had uh, 18 killed in action when I was wow. with, the, with the unit. So, but the, the battalion, we had, uh, I'm, I'm thinking back to the book, we had over, uh, oh gosh, let's see, Alpha, we lost 58 battalion, the Black Scars lost 276, but the regiment lost uh, 542, and the 1st Division lost uh, 3,151. So we, we, we were, uh, uh, we had our losses, but we inflicted a terrible amount of loss on the enemy. Sure. Well, I saw in the book there's a little vignette about your buddy Pringle. Yeah, Mike Pringle got killed on the flight line. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell, tell a little bit about that? Yeah, that was on uh, December 3rd, 1969. We were getting ready. To go. We'd been on a, a three-day rest and relaxation period back in, in Dao Chang. And uh, on the fourth morning, we were, uh, we had, everybody had uh, restocked. We had ammunition, rations, water, and we were all at the flight line uh, laying around waiting for the choppers to come in. And it was, you know, in that, that morning. And uh, all of a sudden, we were just laying around, and some of the guys were standing up. I'm laying out. I'm probably reading something. or about half asleep. And then I just heard about 15, 15, 20 feet away from me, I was just heard a pop, a rifle go off, scared the heck out of everybody. And when I looked up, Pringle was falling backwards. His buddy, they were goofing off of their M16 machine gun. I mean, M16 rifles. And he didn't realize, I guess he forgot or something. Or didn't realize he he had one locked and loaded and uh, actually pulled the trigger. And, and uh, he, Pringle died on the first flight right there. It Yikes. Was terrible. It was, yeah. oh. Well, Joe, did you interact with any of the Republic of Vietnam troops? Uh, yeah, but very, very little. It was uh, they came out and patrol with us. Just a few of them. Uh, my interaction with much we did with the uh, what we call the Chu Hoys, which were the because uh, we had some that were Chu. We had some that were uh, Vietnamese uh, scouts uh, that knew the area. They weren't really and they. Got a little training and stuff. Became soldiers. We had some two hoys, which were which meant open arms. These were uh, NVA or Viet Cong 
who gave up and came to our side. Mm. And uh, they we worked with those quite a bit. I never really, uh, I, look, I got to know quite a few of the scouts and stuff. We had some Thai scouts with us and stuff. But the two hoys who were really two hoys who were uh, NBA or BC who gave up and came to our side, I really had a hard time trusting them completely, you know? Sure. Just, you just give up and come to our side. Be like an American soldier giving up and going to the Russian side, you know, <laughs> like that. But uh, we had some regular scouts, so that uh, the Vietnamese signed to us. I really, I really liked those guys and trusted those guys quite quite well. Chow Sock and Chow Ho were two of them. Hmm. Good soldiers, yeah. Good scouts. They just didn't know the military uh, discipline that we had, you know. Sure. So, sure. Well, Joe, how did you and your your colleagues feel about the North Vietnamese that you were fighting? Uh, they were uh, they were tough. The, uh, the VC were tough, also. Yes, the guys we were fighting, the NBA were more. Seemed like to me, the NBA were more organized. Mm-hmm. Uh, had better equipment, but uh, they were tough, tough as nails. They they were. Uh, I always felt it. Even today, I feel it. I don't have any animosity toward the NBA or the BC. They were doing what they thought was right, what their country called them to do, and I was doing the same thing. But I'd love to sit down and talk to some of those guys. But they, the NBA were tough, well organized. The BC were uh, probably not as organized, but they were tough, and then uh, uh, they were just formidable fighters. They, uh, the, they didn't have the fire part we had. That, that made a difference in the battles and stuff. Well, the, the, the air part was, was absolutely awesome. Joe, did you ever have any particularly harrowing moments that you remember where you, where you kind of thought that might be it for you when you were over there? Yeah, I told him about the book. He got a buddy of mine, Roger Johnson from Minnesota. Uh, this was in, uh, this was in probably in May or, yeah, I was in Macon. I was still carrying his, you know, the uh, ammunition. Uh, we come to this huge open area, and uh, it was probably 500 meters across to the other side, and it was kind of a marshy, wet place. But to go around it, it was real long. To go around it, almost looked like a big drop zone for, for uh, uh, the paratroopers, but it wasn't. But to go around it, it took time, so Captain Scully uh, selected... Uh, Johnson and me to, to go across and secure the other side, send two over, you know. And we got about, about halfway, maybe three-fourths of the way over there. And we came under fire from a, a, a Chicon machine gun. And it was a, you know, rat tat 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 And then we hit the ground. And, and Johnson and I swerved down the day when we hit the ground. And we're, we're facing each other. And it was grounds going between our face, you know. <laughs> we, were, we were crawling. We tried to get out of it. Then we hit the ground we had to crawl to get out of that spot and fortunate for us we crawled together and went to our went to my right johnson's left and we got in defilade and definitely as we were below the, the, the uh, uh where the rounds were coming in because we were hidden by uh being almost in a uh, an old bomb hole so we were lower than what they could reach us at and uh our, of course our, it was just scared up thunder i i, I, I tell in the book i I think I peed on myself. <laughs> uh, but fortunately for me, when we laid down, it was all wet. When I stood up, you couldn't tell. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the other, uh, the white tracers were popping through our, our face and stuff. And then, uh, the guys, uh, they started uh, lobbing 203, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, 79s into the woods and firing back over top of us. They brought it 
uh, chopper in and raped the area. And we stood up and all the guys said, oh, man, we thought you guys had been to dust. <laughs> we were forced to, you know. But, uh, and then another time, that that was a close call. And one other time that sticks in my mind, that sticks in my mind quite well. But we were outside of Dow Chang and we were on a, a trail that was going between the Dow Chang, the, the, uh, the, the uh, uh, outside wire, and, a, and an old uh, cemetery. And we just moved into the woodlot. There it was kind of small rubber trees, and there was a trail there. And we were setting up an ambush. And I, I was out there, and I crawled out there, setting my claymore mine up. I laid me up sixteen beside me, and I, I was about maybe fifteen feet off the trail. I looked up. There's an NVA soldier standing there in full gear with his AK-47. I thought he was looking right at me. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm a, I'm a goner. But I reached down slowly to get my weapon, and he turned and went on down the trail. And I guess he didn't really want to, I was down in the grass, and of course I had a green uniform. I, maybe he didn't see me or he thought, or maybe he did see me and thought, I'm not going to fire. I'll just bring all heaven, all hell down myself, you know. But gosh, it scared the living thunder out of me. I said, man, what a close call. I think, again, you know, but uh, I thought he was looking at me. He may have heard a little noise behind me. He was looking over me. I was pretty close to the trail. That was, I, I still remember that guy looking, you know, and, uh, having a and the pith helmet on and all this gear and stuff. I was glad he moved on down the trail. <laughs> well, Joe, how long were you in country before you got your first big R&R? Uh, I got there in uh, uh, April 1st of 1969. I took my R&R somewhere around the, the 10th or 12th of December, so from April to December. Now, I could have taken it uh, earlier, but my choice was to go to uh, Australia, Sydney, Australia. I want to be somewhere that's more like being in the States. Right. I didn't want to go to Ireland or to uh, Okinawa. I want to be more like where people are. It's close to the state side, so I waited took it in December. So I was there from uh, all of April, May, June, July, August. I started about eight months before I took R&R. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was, most people took around the sixth or seventh month. Some took, some people got two. I don't know how they did that. I they never <laughs> <me> two. <laughs> I took it. Well, what was your experience like down in Sydney for your R and R? I absolutely loved it. I love to go back. Uh, people were great. They were making a lot of money off the GIs, you know, the bars and uh, the bars and hotels and stuff. And uh, they were just good people. They were just. I really enjoyed it. Uh, got there and. Uh, I tell about the book. I didn't realize how uh, exhausted one can be, but I got there. I don't know what day of the week it was. It was probably five o'clock at night. I got back to the room and I got the hotel room, got it. And I just decided to take a real hot, I just want to get in a tub of hot water and take a shower and all that. And I crawled in that bed, the air conditioning was going on. And I woke up and I looked at the clock and it says, it said, uh, uh, Six, and I thought, gosh, it's early. I was sleeping at one. I, and I thought, now I'll get some breakfast. So I called down and I said, I'd like to get some breakfast. She said, Excuse me. I said, I'd like to get some breakfast. She said, We can probably round, you know, make something for you. I said, What's the problem? She said, It's six o'clock in the evening. <laughs> I thought, Dang, I'm just one day of partying. <laughs> I slept 24 hours, you know, just I, I couldn't believe it. I messed up one whole day. <laughs> I met some of the guys that, that I 
traveled over with, you know, they said, where you been all day? I said, I slept the whole dang day. I said, you guys aren't infantry. That's why you just Well, Joe, in the book, you also talk about the donut dollies. Can you talk a little bit more about what that program was? Yeah, they, uh, we saw, the, the first time I saw a donut dolly was in uh, uh, Song Bay. That was just for an hour, so I took pictures and stuff with them. And they were there to uh, boost morale, and uh, they did do that. They uh, just seeing you know, a, a female from from the United States talking to them stuff, and uh, it really did boost morale. But the, the two I really remember real well, I got a good picture of them. We got them in the picture of the book. It's probably August or September of 1969, and we were in Daoqing, and uh, they came out, and they had uh, coffee and orange juice and uh, cookies and all that good stuff, and of course, we was trying to be nice till we went in. We'd rather have a cold beer or a drink, you know. We'd drink <laughs> a little coffee, and, and then we were playing games and stuff with them, but uh, they made a lasting impression. Uh, I know that we were, they had an easel with, a, with a, like a magic marker, and we were playing a, a game that we divided the company up into two, and uh, they were playing a, anything, like, uh, naming words that started with a B, like blue sky, blue moon, and boy, we we were all tied. <laughs> yeah, remember, I'm 18 year old. I'm full of piss and vinegar. All right, <laughs> so we're all sitting there thinking. And I finally thought. I jumped. I said, "Blue bloomers." And of course, they uh, and the guys were smacking me in the head, telling me to you know, watch out. I guess what? I'm just trying to win the game. <laughs> they were laughing, but they in the face. But, uh, <laughs> was, we had a good time, though. They, they were just like. And they were godsend for us, good people. So, what did you do for recreation, just normally? Because it was eight months between the time you got there and the time you got an R and R. And assuming you weren't on the line that whole time, what kind of things did you do to pass the time when you weren't in watching out for the enemy? In the jungle, if we we weren't on an ambush, we set up in uh, uh, like a night a defensive position. Maybe we were overlooked an area, not, really not on ambush, but watching over an area we could and we'd always make sure one man per per position was on guard and the other two or three would be back and we, we'd actually read and uh, some guys would play cards you know you're not you're, you're, you're sitting whispers and stuff no notes no talking and stuff and that happened when we were in the uh, in the jungle i read a lot they bring books and stuff out i put a book in my rucksack and if i get a chance i'd read couldn't read them at night time but you can read them at daytime but uh we got back to Far Sport Base. Now, Far Sport Base is where it's like just one infantry company there and it's an artillery company there. They got a little small mess area and they got a uh, aid station. It's not real big, but a uh, big base camp, there may be uh, two divisions there. And then, mm. uh, you might have several artillery units there. You might have a field hospital there, a PX, and all this stuff. It was, so we got to Far Sport Base. Uh, they bring us uh, soft drinks out and. Uh, we get up one hot meal a day, and we we uh, 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 there again be playing cards, or reading, and uh, uh, just relaxing, man. When we got back to the base camps, we had our own uh, clubs and stuff, and we drink beer, drink whiskey, and uh, have a good time, party, and listen to music. In the far sport bases, and in the jungle, you couldn't listen to music. You couldn't do it. You said, no. But once we got to the base camp, because they had lights around, it's like a little city. Had lights and you had bands playing. You go see a band play, or you might go to the PX, but uh, you can listen to radio, 
write letters home. Now, I did write letters home when I was in the jungle and in the far sport base. And I'd mail them uh, as the choppers came in to get resupply. We'd mail them out on, uh, on the choppers and on our letters and stuff. So, yeah, we, we, we occupied our times. And the, and the uh, also in the base camps, we had horseshoes, played on basketball. And in one place down Zeon, they actually, well, we had one that actually had a swimming pool. And they try to, I try to get all the infantry guys to go to the swimming pools. And I tell you what, we had so much jungle rod on us and <laughs> ringworm, and they really put a lot of chlorine in it. And uh, it was really good for that. <laughs> so they tried to, to go to the swimming pool, and I, I enjoyed that too. But, Joe, how did your fellow soldiers get along with each other? In the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of racial tension back in the United States. Did you see that in your units too? Uh, we were fortunate in our unit. Uh, maybe some of the rear units, uh, we saw a little bit of it. But in our unit, it didn't matter if you were green. You know, you white, red, it didn't matter what color you were. And we all we all got along very, very well. We all drank from the same canteen. We had a jug of, we had a jug of liquor. We just passed it around. <laughs> but we just didn't. There was no racial tension whatsoever in uh, Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 2nd Infantry. So, Joe, you were 18, turned 19 in Vietnam. You weren't married at this time, correct? Oh, no, sir. No, no. Not that I couldn't have a woman. So, so you got married shortly after you came back? Yeah, I got back in, uh, uh, I got back, uh, left Vietnam March 31st. I was back here back in April of 69. I got married in, in uh, July, I, I'm sorry, 70. I got married July of 70. Uh, my wife and I, we've known each other since we were eight or nine years old. Wow. We to school together. We weren't dating when I was Vietnam. When we came back, we started, we had seen each other quite a bit. We started dating and stuff and kind of got serious. We wound up getting married in July. <laughs> he's been one forced woman. We've <laughs> <laughs> been married 53 years this, this, this year. Wow, congratulations. Yep, thank you. So after you got back, how much longer were you in the army? I got back in uh, April, and I got out the following June. So I had uh, so I wound up extending. I, I extended my, my my time in the army. I didn't have a job to go to at the time, so I just wanted to go back farming. Sure. So I had proficiency pay, and I I think I extended nine months. So I wound up well, I spent wound up spending thirty three months in the army. And uh, they were paying me a proficiency pay. Uh, <laughs> I took an infantry test at Fort Meade, Maryland, where we got stationed. And uh, you had to get take a proficiency test to see if you were proficient in your MOS. <laughs> and I took it. It was, a do- it was like $30 a month. That's a lot of money back then. <laughs> yeah, I'll take that. And my wife and I, we stayed until June of uh, 71. We came back, and then uh, I went to work for a civilian employer. And then I joined the Kentucky National Guard in 74. Wow. Well, and you stayed in the Guard all the way through Desert Storm, right? Yeah, yeah. I retired from the Guard in the U.S. I had four years regular Army, counting the Desert Storm time, and then I had uh, uh, 23 years in the National Guard. I retired in uh, May of 1997. I was a first sergeant at E-8. Nice. Nice. Well... When you when you came back from Vietnam, what was like life for you? First of all, you're you're still in the army, but you're not in Vietnam anymore. Was that a hard adjustment for you? It was it was really 
didn't know if I could adjust it. First of all, I had some physical problems, but mm-hmm. uh, eating so much sea rations. So when I came back, eating my mom's home cooked food, my mom's a great, but she cooks southern style. Everything's fried. Right. So, and eating the food, I really had some stomach problems for about three weeks. Uh, the diarrhea just upset stomach, and then uh, went to the doctor, and he said, "You know, just it's, it's, we're going to give you Pepto Bismol. You're going to finally adjust back, you know." And uh, I did. But uh, getting back here, uh, I got stationed. And being at home was great. I went on a 30-day leave at home. That was absolutely great. Saw my wife, but I, but I got to Fort Meade, Maryland, and that's when I saw the racial tension. Mm. Uh, not used to it, and. Uh, uh, everything was just, it just, uh, I got, went to Fort Meade, Maryland, racial tension. See, I got called up and went down to the riots uh, in D.C. for the Kent State killings. Mm. Well, and that was in May. I left Vietnam the end of March. And in May, I was in Washington, D.C. in riot gear. Wow. And I'm a Bravo infantry guy. Talk about confused. I, thought, <laughs> I just left the war zone. I, I'm fighting these, fighting over there. Now I'm, I'm fighting again, fighting my own people. And it was, it was really, really uh, a tough time. And then my wife and I got married, and she moved with me back to Fort Meade, Maryland. Uh, that was in July. And it was still uh, some tough times. I, I found uh, I was uh, on the uh, CQ charge of quarters, and uh, at two different times I found uh, a dead GI from overdose in the barracks. Oh, wow. Yeah, I did that twice. Uh, found one in, the, in his bunk, and then uh, as I was checking the, the barracks and stuff, and I found another sitting on the john, you know, dead. Both of them died. Wow. From, from overdose. And, uh, everything was just hitting me really hard. And if it hadn't been for my wife being married and stuff, I'd have went back to Vietnam. Mm. I just, I, I would said I would spend the rest of my time back in Vietnam. It made more sense back in Vietnam, and it, it seemed like I had a purpose in Vietnam. At Fort Meade, I just, I just couldn't, I didn't, uh, it just didn't, all, everything was happening just didn't, for a farm boy from Kentucky, I said, this, this, didn't, it's, this is not the real world for me. Right, right. Well, Joe, how, how did you find, how did you find your purpose after Vietnam and being in the Army? What did you do to kind of have a sense of fulfillment and drive after you left the service? Well, as uh, my last couple of months in, in, in the Army, regular Army, it started getting a little bit better. And, I, and they were, we were getting some assignments and stuff and kept us real busy. And before that, we weren't very busy. We were holdovers. And that was a problem. Mm. Had a lot of sitting around time doing nothing. Now. But then the last two months, we were busy. We were doing a firing range, uh, uh, supervision of firing ranges, and a lot of supervising of, of classes and stuff that that made a little bit better so it started getting a little bit better but when it got out came back and then uh, i was farming with my dad and i joined a company called ingersoll rand company i didn't want to farm my whole life and uh, my dad knew that and i joined ingersoll rand company got a good job things were going real well i did that from uh, 71 until uh, 74 uh, october 74 i really wanted to get back in the military because I needed the extra income and I wanted, and I wanted the retirement, but I didn't want to do it full time. So uh, the recruiters came out talking to the National Guard recruiters 
and they allowed you to take try one, just one year, try for one year. And uh, going into artillery, and I said, guys, I'm infantry. I'm going into artillery. <laughs> I don't have a clue. I said, we'll train you. And I went into the uh, the artillery in October 73 and uh, uh, stayed until May of 1997. Wow. So it was, and I, I'm so thankful because, because I like the, the benefits. I like to pay. It helped my family pay-wise. The pay was very, very good uh, for a weekend warrior, they called it. But, but uh, the benefits of the now I'm reaping the benefits of retirement and the uh, uh, the Tricare, the, the insurance and stuff, medical insurance. So I'm glad I stayed. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't go into Desert Storm. I uh, when I went to Vietnam, I only had my mom, dad, my brother, and two sisters. When I was in Desert Storm. I had my wife and three kids. Mm-hmm. And what a big difference it was. And when my feet hit the sand and. Uh, in the would have been uh, let's see, January of 1991. When my feet finally hit the sand. I thought, "What the thunder are you thinking?" <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Well, you fought into this big boy." So we had a really good artillery unit, though. Had really well trained. I learned a lot from artillery, and still do today. But uh, good unit. We came back, and uh, uh, the we were in the process of changing from eight inch artillery to the new multi launch rocket systems. And uh, uh, I said, well, I thought about retiring in. They said, give a little bit more time. Help us get through the transition. So uh, I did that. And in uh, May of 97, I wanted to retire. Because I had so much going on with my civilian employer and the National Guard. It was almost uh, too much. And my wife said, you got a lot on your platter, big guy. I said, yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, I enjoyed both of them. I enjoyed the civilian employment and working with the National Guard and, and the regular army. So, Joe, when did you decide that you wanted to write a book? Well, when I when I retired from my civilian job in 2011, my daughter came to my middle daughter, Jennifer. She said, Dad, you got plenty of time on your hands. I said, I do. She said, yeah, you have plenty of time on your hands. She said, you need to sit down and just write a little journal or something. What you did in Vietnam, we don't know. We were your children when you were in Desert Storm. We kept up with it. You told us when you came in. We saw you. sent letters. We kind of knew what was going on. We don't have a clue what you did in Vietnam. So I said, well, I will start writing some stuff down. So I started writing some notes down. I thought, you know, I need to call some of the guys. And I started calling my, my old platoon sergeant was in Louisville. And from that, it blossomed in. I was talking to like 40 guys I served with. Okay. <laughs> I, I had written this little bit of a journal. I was looking for uh, one of my best friends over there, Joe Sproul. And I called LaGrange, Georgia many times. Never got uh, it didn't help, but I talked to the uh, um, the county clerk. I said, well, just give me the county clerk. So I started, I said, do you know the Spruill family? She said, well, I know Jan Spruill. And I said, maybe, I said, let me give me her phone number. So I called this Jan Spruill. She had to be Joe Spruill's sister. So go had died. I didn't get to talk to him. But I told her I had written a, a little bit of a, a journal about Vietnam. I like to send it to her because it's, it's got Joe's name in it little story about him and that's what got started uh, writing a book because after she got to have some photographs she asked me that uh, if I would uh, entertain listening to a, a guy about writing a book I said, well, sure. so and a guy named Stephen Spruill which was her first cousin called me he was a, uh, a big-time writer he had, had her number one best-selling book at, at uh, New York Times best-selling book hmm. several years ago he read the uh, what I'd written. He said, he'd write a book. He said, I'll help you do it. 
do it. But you got to do the writing. I'll just, I'll just be your mentor. And that's what really got started. And, uh, it took, uh, see, it took three years, a little over three years to, to write and to uh, get a good publisher. And then uh, as soon as I got finished writing it, I knew I needed to add more. I changed stuff. So I started my second edition. Like a week after I wrote the first edition, I was already making notes and stuff. And the second edition came out in uh, November of 2020. Okay, great. Did you find that a useful thing for you? I know a lot of vets think writing about their experience is therapeutic. It's, there's no doubt about it. And I keep encouraging vets who have PTSD. And I said, you keep it all bottled up. That's why you got PTSD. I said, in my opinion, I said, that's too much strictly my opinion. I said, but if you talk about it with with other veterans and start writing about it, write it down, get it out, you know, get get it out there. You want others to read it, you know. I always said that I want our memories to stay alive long after we're gone. Right. And I wrote it up. I came up with a saying. I really mean this. I said that you know every veteran has a story, but by far the vast majority will only remain in the veteran's mind and be destined to be lost forever. And that's so sad because everybody's got a story. And I, I encourage veterans to write their, their story. It doesn't have to be a published book. Write it for your family. And uh, I believe that. I, I think it was a, uh, after leaving uh, Desert Storm and, and being in Vietnam, I, I just think that uh, the book has really helped me. It's a, it's a good vent valve. It's a good way to vent. And, and I, I just, we're real proud of it. I'm so proud that I got the names of the guys I served with, especially the 18 killed in action, mm-hmm. their name, so people can see it, you know, years down the road, I hope somebody reads it, and they, they'll they know what war's all about. I told my, I went to a class uh, three years ago, uh, a high school class, to talk about uh, war, and uh, talk about Vietnam and Desert Storm, and I, <laughs> you remember these, these, I'm quite a bit older than these kids, so I said, you know, really, war's not, John Wayne and Clint Eastwood. And I got a sign. One guy raised his hand. He said, who are they? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking, Mom, I'll say, they're not, you know, they're not so-and-so, you know, but they were all laughing at me. But it's truly, it's not. It's not the John Wayne and the Clint Eastwood. It's war's real. And people get killed and maimed and a lot of injuries and a lot of death and destruction. That's, and people need to understand that. That's It's something we got to pass on to our our next generations. I make all my grandkids read the book. I, I tell them if they want to get any inheritance from me, they got to read the book and got to tell. And I won't ask them about different parts of the book. <laughs> so I've got seven grandkids and two great grandkids, and five of the grandkids have read the book so far. <laughs> that that sounds like a, a pretty good deal to get some uh, grandpa's money. You got to read the book. <laughs> That's easy, right? Well, Joe, as someone who experienced Vietnam and Desert Storm, what kind of advice do you have for folks that are that are getting into the, this line of work? Yeah, well, uh, I've always said this. I said this was a first sergeant in Desert Storm. Uh, take the training serious. Learn all you can from the training, whether it be weapons, whether it be tactics, uh, whether it be uh, life-saving, whatever you do, take it serious. Uh, and that increases your survivability rate by tenfold. Mm. So the, the training is, is serious, and you need to take it serious. And understand that 
being a soldier can be the one of the loneliest things you'll ever live in your life. You're going to be around new people you don't even know, just be you, but you, you adjust very, very rapidly, and you'll find 99.9% of the people will take you in, you know? And, but it's uh, being away from home was probably the, the largest challenge I faced, not being around family and friends. And it was, uh, that's the loneliness of a soldier. And that's why it's so important to make friends and good friends and the camaraderie you establish together. You know, it's just, it's just, uh, it's hard to explain, but that's, that's truly part of the, the biggest challenge is the, always a thought of home and family and friends is on your mind. That's right. Well, Joe, we're getting close to an hour here, so I thought I'd just turn it over to you for any last thoughts. Anything else you want to highlight from your book, Call Sign Dracula, or about your experiences in Vietnam or Desert Storm, or anything else you want to share with our listeners? Well, the only thing I would want to say, I guess that uh, uh, writing a book was, uh, for me, a personally, how I could honor and recognize all the great men I served with especially the 18 killed in action. And I said in the book, I said now, I use the term, what a bunch we were. And we truly were a great bunch of men thrown together. And from all wakes of life, from all, you know, we had uh, Hispanics, we had Chinese, Japanese, we had blacks, whites, and we were just, uh, uh, what a melting pot that came together and formed one nice, cohesive group, you know. And, uh, I would, uh, I said to my children, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do it again, but I'm glad I went through it. I wouldn't want to miss it. I wouldn't want to miss it, you know, and uh, it's, uh, I'm very patriotic. Uh, I stand with, I, I, I stand in, 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 in all of, all those who are serving now and uh, all volunteer service. And I just, I just stand in all that. We need to always take care of our, our veterans and our troops, and never, never, I've said this, never be against the troops. You, you might be against the war or something that's going on, but never be against the troops. I think, so I, I think that's a great way to leave it, Joe. I really appreciate you being with us today, and I'll put links to your book in the show notes. Call Sign Dracula, I think it's a great story, not just about Vietnam, but about life in general. And I appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you very much. I really, really enjoyed it. I really appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes another episode of the Battlefields Podcast. I'd like to thank today's guest, Joe Fair, our sponsors, the Epoch Times and the Havoc Journal, our editor, Michael Neal, and most importantly, you, our listeners. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charles Fate, your host. And until next time, good hunting on your own battlefields. <laughs>